One more round of applause as the kids leave here. Thank you, kids. <laughs> well, happy Easter to you. Glad that you're here with us. I'd invite you, uh, if you have a Bible, to pull it out. If not, you can sit and enjoy. We've got several of the verses we're looking at this morning uh, on the screen. And um, did kids make it back to their own seats? They did. Good. We have kids with parents. That's a good thing. Um, we want that. Uh, let me uh, just ask you a question as we start here. How many of you are good at hide-and-go-seek? Anyone good at hide-and-go-seek? Here's what I had a hunch. There's a handful of adults, but most kids are good at this, right? Um, and they know that. They haven't forgotten just how fun it is to go and hide uh, and how fun it is to go hunting also and the, the thrill of being found. We had a couple of adults that must be in touch with their inner child because they're like, yeah, I'm good at this game. Uh, Sometimes we, we tend to lose that over the years. We tend to, to grow up and, uh, and go away from that. Um, here's the reality is that everyone in life is seeking something. And, uh, it tends to be this way that we start off as little kids and we're, we're hunting around for things and, um, and enjoying life that way. And as we grow up, uh, our, our hunt gets a little bit different. We start searching for different kinds of things. Let me just throw out a couple that, that may ring true. Um, Something that you see in movies, something that you see in uh, magazine articles, something that you just see in your own life is people seeking happiness, right? This is built into kind of the the fabric of our country even, the pursuit of happiness. Uh, People also are looking sometimes for status and uh, more recognition, more fame. Uh, Some of the things that are on our TV screens these days um, reveal how far people will go for 15 whole minutes of fame. Um, Security. One of the things that is uh, is always on people's minds, or often on people's minds, especially in this day and age, is security. And people are hunting for that. They're seeking for it. How about rest? Anyone just long for the weekend? Seeking for the weekend? Yes. We have we have a woman do any moment here. She's longing for rest. Uh, that's something that's kind of elusive. It's something that we're we're all hunting for. We want to just find a little bit of peace. Um, to get a little bit more uh, broad with it, some people are seeking purpose. They're wondering why they're here. Some people are hunting for their big break, whatever it might be. There's a lot in the world that, that says this, make good, be good, look good, feel good, or do good. And if you do those things, maybe you'll find what you're looking for. Some people are even seeking God. And something like Easter morning, there's a lot of people who come to church and, um, and they're seeking God. And I am thrilled that you're here this morning to, to, to join us as we open God's Word and, and seek Him. I have a question for you. How many of you are going to uh, be doing something like this soon and having an egg hunt? Or how many think you are? Yeah? I'm going to be a part of that. I love hiding eggs. It's one of the joys uh, of my year is going and hiding the eggs. Me and my brothers have a great time with that. Um, now, wouldn't it be surprising if as you were hunting eggs, kids, or adults that are in touch, uh, as you're hunting those eggs, wouldn't it be a little bit of a shock um, if, if something happened? Wouldn't it be a shock to kind of realize that instead of you hunting the eggs, the eggs were actually seeking after you and hunting you? Wouldn't that be a little surprising? Olivia, that would freak you out a little bit, wouldn't it? I mean, if you heard little tiny voices and they're like, they're getting warmer. And you're like, what? Who said that? 
And these eggs are now seeking you. They're hunting after you. Um, here's, here's where I'm going this morning. On the front cover of your bulletin this morning, um, I have the words, seeking God. And I also have the words, God seeking. And what I want to show you this morning is that the Scriptures actually teach something that's surprising to many people. That as we seek God, and we think we're on the hunt for God, and we're looking for God, like many things in the Bible, God actually takes that and kind of turns it, turns it on its head and what we see from a biblical picture of God is that God actually is seeking us. And much like people hunting for Easter eggs, it's surprising to kind of get that. John 3.16 is one of the most famous uh, verses, and not just in football stadiums. But it says this, God so loved the world that he sent his son. What did he send his son doing? We're going to look at that a little bit more in depth. But he sent him really on a rescue mission. And we're going to kind of explore that this morning. But it begins long before Jesus. The first man and first woman are in the Garden of Eden. Things are perfect. And sin enters the world because of man's choice. And Adam and Eve are in the Garden. And God comes looking for the man, looking for the woman. Where are you, Adam? What were they doing? They were hiding. Kind of the very first hide-and-go-seek, I suppose, that went on. Hiding and running from God can be kind of a learned behavior. I don't know if any of you have been to Mexico City before, uh, but this applies to many cities uh, in the world. But Mexico City probably for me stands out as the most. We have some family that uh, have some, some uh, they, they, they live down in Mexico. And every time I fly in Mexico City and spend any amount of time in Mexico City, I realize this. As I'm flying in, you, you descend from beautiful blue skies into uh, a thick blanket of smog and pollution. And you land, you kind of fly through this cloud for a while, and you come out the other side and you land. And as you're down in Mexico City and you're spending some time there, after a while you forget that you're in this really, really polluted air because you're, you've just been there for a while and you're kind of, you're kind of used to it. And I think running from God and hiding from God can actually be so ingrained in us that we don't even know we're doing it. I don't know that I've met many people consciously saying, yeah, I'm one of those hiding and running from God. But I think it's a learned behavior that can be built into us. So this begs the question, if the Bible says God is uh, is seeking, what is he seeking? Uh, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to, to turn to the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the first part of your Bible. And in Luke chapter 15, we're going to look at some parables, some stories Jesus told. <coughs> and the first thing God is seeking is the lost. first thing God's seeking is the lost. Luke 15, uh, starting in verse 4. It says this, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no, who, who need no repentance. We have a guy here with a hundred sheep, loses one. And the beautiful part of this story I want you to really focus in on is this, that there's more joy in heaven over one repentant sinner, over the one that was lost and is found 
than over the 99 that never strayed. You ever lost an animal? Ever lose an animal before? It can be actually really quite gut-wrenching. Last summer, we were packing up and heading for a trip, and um, and our dog Maverick got out. This is Maverick. And uh, Maverick has been around in our family longer than three of our children. And so he's kind of a fixture in our home, and we were in a relatively new neighborhood. We had dropped our kids off at Bible study. We're packing up. We're leaving for a trip after Bible study. And before we take our kids here to to, uh, youth group, Maverick is gone. So we're in kind of a new neighborhood, and we realize that we have on his collar his old uh, his old information. So Maverick's wandering the city of San Jose. We don't know where he is, and we start driving. We take our two cars, and we're driving all over. My wife's on her bike, cruising around the neighborhood, and we are literally accosting every person who's walking that neighborhood, and we're pulling up, and we're like, hey, have you seen, uh, you know, Maverick? And they're like, what's Maverick? And then we have to explain what a, what a Maverick is. But uh, we're asking. We're asking everywhere. Well, a half hour went by. No Maverick. Uh, we send the kids off to Bible study. An hour goes by. Two hours goes by. Um, at one point, uh, a few people from our church that live nearby saw me driving around. They're like, didn't I just see you like two blocks over? They found out what was going on, and they kind of joined the hunt. So now we have multiple people from our church actually looking for Maverick. We start looking some more, and now there's tears from three rows back. I wanted to cry, but I'm not crying because I'm the man. I'm supposed to hold it together. But my daughter's now crying, looking for Maverick, wondering where he is, wondering if he's okay. After Bible study, there's an army of people now looking for Maverick. It's now dark time, and we're looking for Maverick. We're hunting for him. Now, we don't have 99 other animals, but if we did, we would have left them all at home, right, to go find Maverick. That was what was really important at that point. Now, here's the kicker. Um, Maverick is uh, is found, okay? So we get the news that Maverick's found. It's a happy ending to the story. We wouldn't bring the story up if it was a downer. That'd be a bummer for Easter morning. Just wouldn't fit. So there's a good ending to it. So we get the phone call uh, from, from our friends, the uh, Cummins, and we find out that, that Maverick's been found. Guess where Maverick's been? Maverick decided to walk about four doors around the corner from us to a court. He has been swimming in the pool with his buddy. He has been being fed. He's been like at a dog spa, basically. <laughs> So for hours, he's been massaged, and this guy, later on, we're packing up, we, we're, 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 we're like not planning on going on the trip, we're just going to keep looking for this dog until we find him. Uh, so later on, we're, we're packing up and we're leaving, and this guy pulls up, and he's explaining the, the details of Maverick's spa day, and, uh, and you know, at that point, you kind of want to wring your dog's neck a little bit, just a little bit, that's just the flesh. Um, but the point is, is that he was found, and some of you can relate to that. If you've lost an animal, you go, man, I, I would just keep looking. We have, we have a guy, a shepherd with a hundred sheep. Now, let's read on. Verse 8 is a woman with ten coins. It says, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Surely you've lost something valuable. You've had something in your possession, and you can't find it anywhere. Uh, my wife and I both, one time, have lost our wedding rings. Mine was, early on in our marriage, at the endless river at Raging Waters. This is a bad place to lose a wedding ring, because it is a giant circle that's about four feet deep, and there's about a hundred people at all times swimming in this thing, and the water's moving, so you can never like quite see it. 
And, uh, and there, we swept the house, so to speak, and we were hunting for this silly wedding ring. We ended up finding it uh, later on. They had a, a diver go in and, and find the ring for me. My wife lost the diamond out of her ring in a hotel room one time. And, uh, and we thought, man, we would never find this thing. You ever look for a diamond, a solo diamond? That's just hard to do. Now I'm on a pastor's salary, so it's not big enough to like pick up with two hands, right? <laughs> so, so we're looking for this diamond and we're hunting around for it. And, and we decide after reporting it and all this stuff, we're like, we're going to go give one last look. And we're just praying. We're like, God, it's just a diamond, but it's kind of special. It's her wedding ring. And we'd sure love to find it. We come back and we had, we had, sh- you know, taken the covers and shaken them out and just everything. We come back, and at the end of the bed is kind of this really cool chest. And sitting on the chest, plain as day, with nothing else on it, is this diamond to her to her wedding ring. Now, let me tell you, there was rejoicing when we found that diamond. It's not life or death, but there's rejoicing, right? And there's rejoicing when this wedding ring uh, was found. And 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 that same sense. Here's here's the picture is that there's rejoicing before the angels of heaven when a lost, repentant sinner is found. That's the picture that the Bible gives. A shepherd with a hundred sheep, a woman with ten coins, and then we have a father with two sons. Read with me in verse 11. It says this, There was a man who had two sons, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. He wanted his inheritance. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Two sons. I'm not sure if you've ever lost a child, either literally in a store. That's a panic. I've helped parents with that. Um, panicky feeling. Um, but maybe some in here are, are, uh, are remembering a time or currently have a broken heart over over a lost child who's in the far country and has wandered from home, who's maybe done something similar, kind of squandered the family wealth or squandered the family name or squandered the family input that's been given and they're wandering the far country. The son said, gimme. Basically, the son said this, Dad, gimme. I want it right now. I don't want to wait till you're gone. I want, to, I want my inheritance right now. Give it to me. And once he gets it, he takes off. He breaks the father's heart. Maybe there's some uh, in our day and age that um, a severe famine hit. The money ran out. Once the money ran out, the friends ran out. Once the money was gone, they kind of hit rock bottom. They've left home. They've left what's there. And in the midst of that, <clears throat> they think, man, I can't go home because of what I've done. But in a sense, they're longing to eat pig slop. They're saying, man, if I could just... It's gotten that bad in their lives that they would long to have pig slop to fill their stomachs and so they're in quite a quandary. Meanwhile, in the story, we have a father who is actively scanning the horizon for the return of this wandering son. He's not sitting around plotting what he's going to say if he ever comes back. He's not sitting around brooding. But instead, the picture is of a father who's actively seeking the horizon for his son's return. When he sees him, 
Here's what he does. Let's read on. Verse 17, but he came, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my friends, uh, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the father said to him, or the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put on a ring, uh, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. What happens when the sun returns? There's a scanning of the horizon. There's an embrace from the father and welcome and celebration ensue. That's what, that's what goes on. And then here's one of the best parts of this story. It says, verse 23, or verse 24, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. Catch this. He was lost and is found. And he began to celebrate. Now let me propose to you this, that really those three stories are in a way the same exact story. They're all a part of one story. And the story is this. It's God seeking the lost. God doesn't only seek the lost, God seeks worshipers. Let me have you turn to one other place. John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is the story of Jesus, and he's in a dialogue with a woman, a Samaritan woman. And what they're talking about is religion. They got talking religion together while Jesus was waiting there. And look down in verse, uh, we're going to pick it up kind of in verse 23 or so. Essentially, we have a woman here who abruptly changes the conversation when Jesus uncomfortably brings up a little bit of her past. And, uh, and she begins to perceive that this, this, uh, this person that she's speaking with, um, knows a little bit about her. And so it got a little too personal. So she kind of shifts the conversation to religion, which seemed like a little bit of a safe topic between a Samaritan and a Jew, uh, much more safe than her personal life, which wasn't, um, glowing. And the problem with this woman is that she's a little bit, um, misled about worship and about what what God really is like. And here she's talking to the Son of God and doesn't realize it. And she's hung up on two things that so many people, even Christians, get really, really hung up on, and that is this. They get hung up on places and events, forms of worship. And they begin talking about sort of these external kinds of matters. And Jesus is wanting to shift her focus a little bit. And he says this, he said, he says to the woman, uh, Jesus said to her, where people ought to worship, verse 21. Woman, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is seeking the lost. That's, that's the whole point of the parable that Jesus told about the lost sheep and the lost coin and what's sometimes called the prodigal son story. But He's also seeking worshipers. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
Here's a, here's a wrong question to ask, and a lot of people ask it in, in some way, shape, or form, and that is this. Do you worship? What that usually means in our culture means this. Are you a believer in something? Are you religious? What is your background? What is your religion on this and that? But do you worship is a, is a, is a wrong question, I would say. I would say a better question is this. What do you worship? And the point being this. Everyone worships something. So it's not a matter of if you worship or not. It's, it's just a question of what you worship. We sing a song in here sometimes called uh, Made to Worship, and it says this, you and I were made to worship. Now, there's a lot in that statement. It implies that we're made by a creator, first of all. And it implies to our purpose and what we're about as created beings, and that is to worship God. But the Bible makes it clear, you and I were made to worship, not the other way around. It's not something flip that, that we were made to be worshipped. We were also made to serve God's purposes and not the other way around. Sometimes we get that confused when man becomes the center, us, we become the center of our own universe. Augustine put it this way, I like this quote, man was made for God and his heart is forever restless until it finds its rest in him. I'm not going to quiz you this morning, I'll just give it to you, but the second commandment of the Ten Commandments is this, you shall have no other gods before me or no other gods but me. There's one God that you should worship. And one of the most loving things God's doing with that command is he's commanding us against idolatry because worshiping anything other than God, putting anything in its place of God makes it something that it can't bear up, it can't hold up, and it actually can sour it. Now we tend to think of idol worship in contemporary culture as people bowing down to a little wooden statue or doing a strange dance or whatever else. It's always harder to see idol worship in your own context and in your own culture, but I've dealt with a lot of international students. One of the things I liked to ask them was this. In some way, shape, or form, what kinds of things do you see Americans worshiping here? And they give all kinds of different answers. Uh, the most obvious ones, of course, are going to our malls and going to our grocery stores, and they say, I think they have a pretty big fascination with chips. I'm like, why is that? Well, there's a giant wall that's like two times the size of me high and as wide as a football field full of chips. And so I think they like chips a lot. Oh, yeah, that's kind of an insightful comment. Some of those that have been around uh, even more um, can kind of pick up on, on some of the biggies and obvious ones. Material's pretty easy to see, but some have even said, you know, it's easy to, to, to worship something like family and have family be so completely all-important, which sounds really, really good. But maybe some of you have known, maybe some of you have experienced what it is to have a couple, let's say, that couldn't get pregnant, finally gets a child, and that child was, in essence, their little idol. It was their God. It was their Savior. It was what was going to bring them together. It was what was going to bring security and happiness and joy. And the weight of God is falling on that little kid. That's a terrible scenario for the kid. And we do that with all kinds of different things. And it's really idol worship. And God says, there should be no other God but me. Not there should. There must not be any other God but me. So here's a little test. How do I know what I worship? Let me give you three things just to kind of ponder in your own mind. Because maybe you're sitting there thinking, I think I worship God, but maybe I don't. Let me just ask you a couple questions. What is it that you sacrifice for? What is it that you lay down for and say, this is, this is locked into my schedule. Other things will sacrifice around that. That may be an indicator of what you worship. Here's another one. What do you give yourself to? 
What do you most wholeheartedly pour yourself into and give yourself to? It might be a relationship. It might be a career. Whatever it is that you're giving yourself to might be what you're worshiping. Finally, here's the third one. What do you daydream about? When your mind is there, we're all able right now. You could be dreaming right now about, uh, you know, where those eggs are going to be or, uh, or what's for lunch or what else. We have amazing capacity, right, to do multiple things at one point. But when you find yourself doing your job, and you, you know the job well, so you're doing it, your brain's going somewhere. What do you dwell on? What is it you're thinking about? What are you dreaming about? Those are some indicators, probably, of where your heart really lies. And Jesus said it pretty bluntly. He says, you can't serve both God and money. He was talking in a very specific context, but he said this, one will be at the top, not both. They can't, they, they can't compete and both be there. To us, it's merely a hobby, it's recreation, it's a career, it's our personality, or it's just family. But maybe it's really an idol with a different kind of a name. I want to give you an example of this, and it's going to just be kind of outside of of, uh, of maybe what's happening in here, but, but you can kind of track with it. You have a husband and wife. Oftentimes, husbands and wives, you have one that's a spender and one that, that's that's kind of more of a saver, okay? Does this ring true a little bit? Yeah, that's that's often how it is, okay? Now, here's what can happen. Let's take the wife, and let's make her the spender this time. She's off spending, and she's off buying things, and this couple gets into trouble because they're constantly fighting over money. Money is this huge issue in their in their marriage. So they go and they seek out some counsel. And they say to the counselor, the husband says, Look, uh, my wife just spends things all the time. And you would look at that and say, um, and say, her idol, kind of the easy surface, obvious answer would be, her idol is money. When really it's not money at all. That's just kind of an external surface thing. Uh, the husband, on the other hand, um, is, is, is called out by his wife. And, and his wife says, you know what? He is so miserly. He saves every last thing, and he watches our finances like a hawk, and he's, he's just always glued to the numbers and what's going on with our, with our money. Easy for the husband to look at the wife and say, her idol maybe is money. It's not money at all. Here's what her, here's what her real issue is. Maybe her real issue is acceptance. Maybe that's her idol. She gives herself, sacrifices, and dreams about acceptance. Now that flushes itself out in buying things, in going places, in, in, in purchasing things. It works out in money for sure, but money is a surface issue. Acceptance is the real God that she bows to. The husband. What if the counselor were to look at the husband then and say, you know what? Um, could it be possible? then instead of you being free from idols, like it seems so obvious to you, looking at your wife who's a spender, that in your penny-pinching, that you're actually spending yourself to serve and worship your God, your Savior, which is security. And that security really is your idol, and that's what you're giving yourself to, that's what you're bowing to, that's what you're trusting to be your Savior. It will pull you out of a jam, it will give you comfort, peace, joy, happiness, so we have the same thing, money, right? But money isn't really the issue. There's two, there's two really underneath foundational kinds of idols that are there. That's just one example of what it could look like for idols to exist in our life without even really knowing it. So what is it that rescues from counterfeit gods is not the removal of the god itself, but a replacement. Here's what happens with removal. 
Sometimes people are addicted to something, some behavior or some substance, and they remove that addiction. They train their body away from that addiction only to have it kind of surface over here with another addiction. It just kind of transferred over somewhere. Some people say, well, I just have an addictive personality. Guess what? The human race has an addictive personality. It really does. We all are made to, catch this, worship. That's what it is. So it's not the the removal, but the replacement. If that's your God, if that's your Savior, if that's what you're pouring into and looking to for happiness, it's not just that we have to remove that and then you'll be okay. Something else will take that place. I promise you that. It's replacement with a bigger and better desire. From an enslaving to a living God who is strong to deliver. Listen to the psalmist. This is from Psalm 34, verse 4, and it says this. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man, I love that, this poor man, he recognized his poverty, cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Now this goes on to say something that is so awesome, and we, we take this and say this sometimes, um, and this morning we're going to experience a little bit. But verse 8, it says this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now I want my helpers to come forward right now and, uh, and help distribute something. God may surprise you. What you know about God may be turned on its head one day, and maybe this is the day. Uh, sometimes sitting in church, you wouldn't ever expect this, but right now you're going to get to to taste and see that homemade cookies are really, really good. Now, we started off saying this should be just for the kids, but then we started saying, well, where do you draw that line, and how do you not leave someone bitter the rest of the service? And so a couple of moms just went to work, and we've got one for every person in the room to taste and see that the Lord is good. You can't read a verse like taste and see that the Lord is good and not be eating something because then your mind just goes somewhere. We'd rather focus it here on a cookie. Now, that's kind of an invitation, isn't it? Taste and see that the Lord is good. I'll tell you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, the spirit and scent of grace ought ought to just go with you everywhere that communicates this idea. Taste and see that the God that I worship is good. And I fear that sometimes churches, and myself included, we can fall into a trap where, where we've got this message going out elsewhere and, and we, we preach the wrong gospel. The gospel's for good people. The gospel's for cleaned up people. The Bible says exactly the opposite. If you think you don't have need, then you won't ever even receive the gospel. The rejoicing is for those who see themselves like this psalmist as this poor man who's crying out to God. That's the person who's ripe for the good news. The gospel, the good news, is not good news unless that's the case in your life. So if God is seeking lost and worshipers, who gets found? And that's a big question, and it's an ultimate question, and I don't want to pretend to try and answer it all here with some quick, easy answers but let me just say this, man, even the media guys are getting a cookie. This is a good day. I mean, this is how we ought to celebrate. This is, this is a good day. I think there's some clues. This is how a church should sound. We're all munching on cookies and unwrapping gifts. Man, that's cool. I think there's some clues. Listen to this. Who gets found? If God's the one seeking, who's, who's, who gets found? There are some clues for us in these, in these parables. Let me go back to the sheep for a minute, for a moment. 
without any offense to shepherds or anyone here, actually shepherds would know this most of all. Sheep are just dumb animals. Okay, they're not very smart. I've never known any personally, but I've read this, and I know this to be true. I've watched their behavior. They're not only not very smart animals, but they're quite vulnerable. Sheep have very little to protect themselves. And sheep are constantly and actively moving away. They're they're a wandering kind of animal, and thus the need for a shepherd, right, that guards them and protects them and keeps watch over them. Who are those who gets found? It's the sheep. It's a wandering sheep. Some people are like that sheep. Let's look at the coin for a minute. The coin is snatched up from its hiding place, quite indifferent to the whole scenario. The coin doesn't know how it got there necessarily, but it just gets found one day. Some people are in that same place. I love to hear people's faith stories and how they came uh, to faith in God. And sometimes they say, man, my life wasn't in the dumps. I wasn't in the worst day of my life. I wasn't actively rebelling God and out running away from Him. It was just a day like any other day. And out of the blue, I was found. My eyes were open. That's a little bit of my story. Thirdly, we have a son. And he wasn't saved while he was in the pig, pig, slopped, uh, pig slop. And he wasn't saved after he kind of cleaned himself up. He returns to the Father and there's restoration that goes on. We have a saying here at NBC that we're fond of. It's this, ready? Come as you are, but don't stay that way. Isn't that the picture of the prodigal son? Prodigal son says, at least I'll come home and just be a slave. I'll at least just be a hired person. He came as he was. He came in the condition that he was, and he probably didn't smell all that great. He probably didn't have a cleaned up, polished life. But the father, after there was restoration, would not leave him in that condition. He loves him too much. He restores him as a son. In fact, what does he do? He goes and he gets a robe and he puts it on the son. That's a beautiful picture of a repentant sinner coming to God. Come as you are. There's nothing you could possibly do to add to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the empty grave that we celebrate this morning. So come as you are. Don't get cleaned up. That's a fool's errand every time. But don't stay that way. You're a changed person. You're a a child of God. You're a saint, as we were just singing about. We're going to sing a song here in just a minute, and I'm going to call the band up, but not quite yet. I want to just give you one quick story, one quick example of this kind of dual search going on, that God is seeking us and that we are to seek after God. There's a story in the Bible of a man called Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, we'll just call him Zach for ease of use and for translating, because Zach is a lot easier. Zach is a guy in the Bible, and I used to see stories about this, and it's more than a cute kid's story. This is not a parable like Jesus was telling before. This was an actual event that went on. And Jesus is uh, is in this this town of Zach's, and, and, uh, and he comes out, and it says this, uh, in Luke 19, you don't have to turn there, you can just kind of listen. Um, but Zach is there, and Jesus is in town, and he hears about it. And Zach's profession, by the way, is a tax gatherer. Not only a tax gatherer, but a chief tax gatherer. And let me just put this a little bit contextually for us. This would be a little bit uh, like like one of those loan guys who, who's been at the top and has kind of reoriented loans in such a way that it robs the common people and turns their whole world upside down so that they can get exceedingly wealthy off of that. Not only that, but this is an occupied nation, and so he's actually selling out his countrymen 
to have exceedingly great wealth and riches. Might be easy to judge and look for yourself and say, I wonder where, where Zach's idol lies. And I wonder how that's working out for him. Luke chapter 19 says this. Jesus comes to Jericho, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was, catch this word, seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Oh, by the way, he was a short guy. I mean, just to kind of add to everything else. Now, probably in that culture, if he was a short guy and wasn't who he was, he probably would have been able to kind of weasel to the front. People would have parted ways. But no one was going to part ways for a short guy that was named Zacchaeus because he was the arch chief tax collector. So what does he do? Kids, you know the story. He climbs a, a sycamore tree, right? He climbs up in a tree, kind of resourceful. He really wants to see who Jesus was. Now catch this. He's up in a tree looking to see who Jesus was. And Jesus, and, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus going through, there's a crowd, so much of a crowd that you kind of have to push in to see who he is. He runs on ahead, gets up on a tree so he can see who this guy is. Jesus is making his way through this procession. Jesus seeks out him, turns to him, calls him by name, says, Zacchaeus, you and me, we're having lunch together at your place. Jesus did this all the time. He didn't own much, right? He just calls Zacchaeus out. Do you see this, this, this dual search going on? Zacchaeus seeking out who Jesus was. But really, it's Jesus who came and sought out Zacchaeus, much to the chagrin and anger of those religious in the crowd who said, man, of all the people, why are you going to him? Maybe it's because Jesus is gracious, he is, and grace like water always flows to the lowest point. Who's the one most in need of grace that day? Zacchaeus. Jesus goes out and he seeks this this guy, Zacchaeus. Let me just tell you what happens for the sake of time. Jesus seeks him out, says he's going to dine with him, which in that culture said, I'm extending friendship to you. We're now friends. There's a relationship that develops. You know what Zacchaeus does? He receives him gladly. Zac has been found. Zac has now been restored. Here's the results of the, of the reunion. He says, uh, oh, I just have to read this part. Um, he says, verse 8, and, and, and Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone anything, I restore it fourfold. Two words that kind of come out. What's the result of him being in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Here it is, mercy. Half my stuff, I'm going to just give it away to the poor. I'm exceedingly wealth. Greed has been my God. I, re I renounce that. Here's my changed life to prove it. Not only charity and mercy, but justice. There was a mosaic law that said this, if you've stolen, you need to return it. You need to make restitution, and you need to give 20% interest on that. You know what Zach did? He said, I'm going to restore it fourfold. If I've stolen anything from anyone, overtaxed them, I'm going to restore it fourfold. You do the math on that, and that's a 300% increase that he gives back. He says, I want mercy and justice to flow out of my life. You know what Jesus' response is? He says this. 
Today, salvation has come to this house. Since he also is the son of Abraham, catch this, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Salvation has come to the house when? Today. Has Zach done anything? No, he's just eating a meal with Jesus. He's made some promises, but he hasn't done a single thing. Here's the point. Salvation doesn't come once he goes and makes good on those promises, does some work, gets cleaned up, starts living a good, righteous life, and then Jesus can pronounce salvation. You know what Jesus does? Jesus befriends him. Jesus now saves him. And with this saving work, Zach's life is transformed. The point is this. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. It's not that we do our stuff and we bring our things to God. We come empty-pocketed to him empty-handed to him. And we're like Zacchaeus, up in a tree, meagerly seeking, but really it's God seeking out us. And when he comes, our role is to receive. Our, our, our role is to receive and believe. Band, come on up. They're going to sing a song right now called By Your Side, and I want you just to listen to these words uh, as we sing, or as they sing. While they're singing, chew on this. God is both the seeker and the Savior. Jesus became poor so that we would become rich. How did He become poor? He took on human flesh, ultimately sacrificing His life in exchange for ours. I hope Good Friday was meaningful to you. The brightness of Sunday morning, the celebration of an empty tomb is quite meaningless if you don't realize how dark Friday was when He suffered and bled and died in our place, taking the punishment that we should have been taking for our sins. Zach's role was to seek, to receive, and repent. And that's what he did. I want you to listen to the song right now. I want to uh, just put a verse up on the screen. And uh, one, of the, one of the dangers of living in a Christian nation is this. Um, we, we live in a place that uh, many people, if not most Americans, believe they're going to heaven. Believe that they're even in Christ if they believe in a, in a Christian version of that. And, uh, and Jesus made it oh so clear through His life. And, and the whole of Scriptures makes it clear. Um, that, that we are not just to blindly, uh, believe good things and hope, kind of, kind of flip a coin and hope for the best. There's an ongoing, uh, sense in the scriptures of saying, of saying what we're gonna read here, and that is this, to examine yourself, to test yourself. Second Corinthians, uh, 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Unless you fail to meet the test. So what is the test? Um, broad brushstrokes, here it is. The book of James is all about this, but it's all through the Bible, and that is this. That faith without action is useless. If these two gears represent belief, what we say we believe, what our faith is in, and the other gear represents 
our actions, our lifestyle, how we actually live, and they're not engaged, then they're useless. James actually says that faith is dead without works. We can imagine two gears, and if one gear is spinning by itself, it's useless. The book of First John says this, if we keep His commandments, we can be confident, not ashamed, versus fearful and wondering. You know, I think the most surprised guy that, were, that was uttering these words was not the crowd when Zach said, I'm going to give half my stuff away to the poor, and I'm going to pay you people back fourfold. I think Zach may have been the most surprised. Because I think for the first time in his life, his life was open, his life was changed, and all of a sudden he found himself merciful. All of a sudden he found himself in charity mode. All of a sudden he thought justice was really important. That wasn't a work of Zach's. That was a work of Jesus's in his life. I just want to give you two uh, quick announcements. One is Rich, um, and our church says something uh, about about how this looks. We don't want to mandate to people, come to Bible study in the midweek, do a service project once a quarter, and make sure you show up at church at least 80% of the time. Then the externals are good, then we're all good with God. That's totally hypocritical and religious, and we reject all notion of that. What we say is this, I'm glad Jesus didn't tithe uh, you know, 10% of his body for me. He gave us everything, right? And so the mandate is lay down your life. Give him everything. Now, part of how we do that is this. We are going to organize as a church and do some things together. But that ought to be a fraction of what's going on in your life. We are going to come and gather and cry out to God together and tell of his great things. But this ought to be a sliver. Because you're a worshiper, you 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 go to church. Now, you don't go to church to worship for an hour a week. Now, part of how we do that is we've, we've begun this thing and uh, Rich is going to share briefly about it and has a quick announcement about it. Go ahead, Rich. So one of the ways that we're going to share it together is on May 21st, we're having our second uh, neighborhood workabout. We've uh, canvassed the neighborhood last Saturday. Let folks know if you have needs with uh, house cleaning, yard work, minor home repair, minor car repair, we're going to help you on uh, Saturday, May 21st in the morning. And... Um, like you to be involved in that. In fact, uh, it won't happen if you're not involved in it, right? We're the workers. So um, two, a couple ways you can get involved. One, on your communication card, you, you can say, I want to serve that day. Also, maybe you're here and you have some of those needs that I just described of yard work or housework, minor home repair, that kind of thing. Uh, you might put on there, I need help that day. Uh, the other thing is we're, we're going to um, let more neighbors know this coming uh, Saturday and pass out some flyers so you can put on their flyers. That lets you know that uh, lets us know you want to help out with uh, passing out flyers. But it's just one way we as a community are going to serve. We're going to have a great uh, service day and then a barbecue after afterwards that Sunday. I encourage you to be involved. Thanks, Rich. Uh, there's one more thing that we want to tell you about. The, the neighborhood workabout is just kind of a drumbeat. Every fall, every spring, we just want to be in our community saying we have a generous God. We want to be generous. We want to extend um, extend that generosity to you. Uh, and another thing that we have going on, Clink's going to tell you about right now. Hi, my name's Clink, and I'm the uh, director of our garden project. And we have a community garden in the back that we just uh, finished our winter vegetable harvest. We had a great harvest. But our goal back there and, and our, for our community garden is to reach out into the community in tangible ways, be God's hands and feet, and to really to meet the needs of the neediest in, in our families and our neighborhood. And uh, there's a few ways you can be involved. Uh, you can lease a box, you can tend a box, or you can sponsor a box. And if you need more information about that, my name is in the flyer. 
uh, in the bulletin that you have. We have a flyer in the back. And in about right after this service, we're going to go back and have a little tour through the garden. So if you'd like to see what we're doing back there, uh, May 14th, we're getting ready to plant for our, for our summer crops. So we're talking about tomatoes and beans, fun stuff that happens in the summer. It's going to be a great time for us to get together as family, reach out to the community, be involved. Uh, you know, we can meet back there, we can fellowship back there, we can uh, meet the needs of our community by having uh, vegetables and our garden projects. So right after the service, we're for, I'm going to be heading out there. If you want to come out and take a tour, come on out and uh, see that. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. We're going to wrap up our service right now, uh, and in just a moment, we're going to we're going to take up our offering. Um, and I would just extend if you're if you're a guest with here, uh, we're really interested in you. Um, and something that we do as a part of our worship is to is to give. And I wouldn't withhold anyone from giving, um, but but that's something that that is really uh, more for our own people. Um, and I would say this: that uh, if you are not in Christ, or if you're if you're wondering if you're in Christ, if you wonder about this, let me just, let me just leave you with this message. Uh, in, in Luke, uh, chapter 24, we have the resurrection story, and I would, I would invite you to go and read the resurrection story. But there's something great said by the angels that are there in the empty tomb, and it says this to the people searching for him. Why do you seek the living among the dead? There's a lot of dead places to seek out salvation. Jesus is alive today. That's why there's a smile on my face. That's why we have a reason and cause to celebrate this morning. Listen to these words of Jesus. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. Seek after God this morning, and I'm going to be around uh, after service. Come and talk to me. I'd love to show you what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to Close with some song, close with our offering, and then you'll be dismissed. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning that we can open your word, that we can be encouraged, that we can be challenged. I pray that, uh, Father, as we dismiss with joy here in a few moments, that we would find our joy and our hope in you. You are the true living God. We celebrate and honor that today. In Jesus' name, amen.